Hello and welcome back to ACFM. This is producer Matt with a few words about what you're about to hear. This will be our 20th trip with ACFM and to celebrate we wanted to pick a topic that would do justice to such a momentous milestone. So naturally revolution was the order of the day. However when we started putting the show together myself and my co-producer Chow realised we were going to need quite a lot of space to do justice to such a big topic. So What follows is a kind of group microdose in which Nadia, Jeremy and Keir collectively tell the history of 400 years of revolutionary struggle, beginning with the English Civil War and bringing us up to around the mid-20th century. We think it works really well as a microdose on its own, but it's also intended to serve as a bit of a supporting text for the full trip. We hope you'll listen to both, as well as the microdose with Rodrigo Nunes that's coming. And we hope this does justice both to such a big topic and also to our 20th trip with ACFM. Whoa, that's pretty far out. Let's do the history, boys. Come on. All right. The word revolution, I mean, it comes from like the same root as revolve. And there is this real change in its meaning. So people think of history as moving through revolutions, meaning not like a, an upturning of everything that currently exists, but just a, a, a kind of literally a cycle. I mean, think about the word cycle, both cycle and revolution, they mean something going around. And then sometime around the sort of 18th century, the term revolution takes on a completely different meaning, really, in, in sort of political discourse, and it means like a complete overturning of the current order. I want to stick with that image for a second because there's revolutions which are a clean revolution. So as in we've got a wheel and it's going round, but then there's something in between before what you just said, Jeremy, which is a weighted revolution. So if if you think about a sphere or something spinning round, but it's got a weight in it, then every time it turns round, it's going to turn round and it's going to escalate and then it's going to slow down. It's going to escalate and it's going to slow down. If you see what I mean? So it's like, you know, a hamster wheel or something or a hamster ball with a hamster in it. It doesn't quite behave as a, as, as a clean turn. Um, erratic erratic revolution erratic or 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 that there is there might be a certain point or a certain weight or a sort of accumulation of force which means that that revolution is not uh, does not have that each turn doesn't take the same amount of time and have the same amount of weight because there's you know something in the middle of it like a centrifuge or something and then beyond that is the turning over so something you know that is kind of completely different almost, to what an original, literal revolution is. So you can take it from there. Most historians today would accept the first of the kind of the modern cycle of revolutions, whereby essentially an emerging political new social class takes political power and kind of abolishes the old institutional order is actually, you know, the English Revolution, the English Civil War of the 1640s, which results in, uh, for 10 years, a republic being declared. And then, and there's a big debate. I mean, there's a tussle between kind of leftist historians kind of here and in France and in America, for example, in the post-war period. The French obviously think the French Revolution is like year zero. You know, nothing important happens before it. And then you've got various English radical historians arguing that actually, no, the English Revolution was really important. But sort of the the sort of compromise position is to is to point out that well it's tr- it is true that the English Revolution in the 1640s has a particular historical status, but it's also true 
that for example like the rhetoric of like let turn the world upside down isn't even completely new then you can go back to the peasants revolts of the middle ages and like it's not like i mean there's probably no time in history when people haven't been able to imagine the the the, the outside possibility of the social order being overturned um and but and it's still the case even when they're you know, declaring a republic in the 1640s in England, it's still the case that the kind of the way they think of their place in history, the people doing that, is they think of themselves as restoring some lost social order. And depending how radical they are, like, you know, it will vary how far back they think it goes. So the sort of emerging middle class and the kind of middle-sized landowners, the gentry, who are the driving force of the revolution, they have this whole mythology, or maybe it's not entirely mythology, it's sort of mythology, which is that there's this pre-Norman, like basically pre-medieval version of England that was much more egalitarian, like old Saxon England, and they're throwing off what they called the Norman yoke. And then you get the really radical groups, like the diggers, the sort of proto-communists, and they say, no, actually, we're going right back pretty much to the Garden of Eden. But everybody's going back to something. But the thing that really is novel in the late 18th century, and this is true to some extent in the United States, is true in the France and the French Revolution, is that you know radical thinkers like Thomas Paine, they start to say, actually, it doesn't matter what happened before. We're going to use our reason. We're going to use our capacity for logical thought to build a society which is actually better than anything that's gone before. And then it's really the, the historical event of the French Revolution which does end up forming the model for what we think of as a kind of political and maybe a social revolution in the 19th century. I mean, that's what Marx and Engels are thinking about when they're thinking about the, their idea of revolution. And then, but of course, the French, I mean, the French Revolution, you know, there is still like zero consensus among historians as to like, when does the French Revolution happen? At what point does it does it go from being like just a, just a kind of um, a kind of radical set, you know, an accumulating set of demands for social institutional reform? And at what point does it become a revolution? Uh, what makes it a revolution? Like, no, I mean, still nobody really agrees about that. Well, I mean, it's too pretty- soon to tell, isn't it? Too soon to yeah. tell. <laughs> Who said that? Um, it was a was it. Um- Vietnamese gets, general, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the it was the guy. It gets credited to various people. Somebody somebody said to some great communist leader, "Who? What do you think of the French Revolution?" And and these they, and they said it's too soon to tell. And it Such was like, a class answer. Yeah, it's yeah. so it's, smooth. <laughs> it's the it's mid twentieth so century. I think. Yeah, it was whoever was like Ho Chi Minh's mentor. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, like I think is the person who who is made, who is credited with it. I don't really because I've seen it. it seen it credited to Mao. I've seen it credited to other people. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I mean, with all of these examples, as as you're going through that history, um, Jeremy, obviously, like that depends on which angle you're looking at it from in terms of what for the groups who were saying or the population saying, well, things were better before and we're trying to restore. It's like they were probably of a certain class and they were probably men. So history is written by the history that we read doesn't really tell us um, the full view of the factors. Like, you know, medieval Britain was not very good for women. Actually, though, thinking about it, perhaps we should take seriously um, whoever, whoever it was that we can't remember who said it's too soon to tell. Because like, one of the things about revolutions is that they work backwards in time and construct their own history. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, basically yeah. the English Civil War got to be seen as a revolution 
only after the French Revolution when revolutions became more thinkable. Do you know what I mean? This is interesting. So it is too soon to tell. It depends. What was what was what was the French Revolution leading to? We'll find out. <laughs> it, it you do have to. I as far as I understand the history, you do have to get to the point where people are no longer referring back to some imagined past before you can really mm. put issues like women's equality on the table. Like that is a qualitative thing because that definitely is an that is an issue in the French Revolution. It's right. not an issue in the English Revolution. Right. Mm. No one in the, no one in the English Revolution, not even the diggers and the levelers. No one is saying the. I mean, the most radical groups in the English Revolution are arguing for a democratic republic, uh, land reform, and full universal male suffrage. But nobody is arguing for women's suffrage. By the French Revolution, the most radical groups. Are arguing for you know are arguing for women's suffrage. They're arguing for you know rights for gay people are are, are one during the most radical phase of the French Revolution. Um, I mean, and per- perhaps the, the the Haitian Revolution is a good way to 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 deal with that. Such a good revolution! Such <laughs> a good revolution! Definitely in my top ten of revolution. In my top five, um, <laughs> So basically, the Haitian Revolution um, happens just after the French Revolution, and Haiti is a a US, uh, sorry, God, French colony, and it's it, you know it's a slave, it's, it's it's a slave island, and there's a it's a success. It's what, what I think it's the only the world's only successful slave revolt. Basically, they they sort of um, overthrow their masters, kill them all, and then they have to fight off you know a, a French invasion. This is the the story about when the French soldiers you know are coming into battle against the Haitian rebels. The Haitian rebels sing the French national anthem back at them, and so it's yeah. like. And then the, the the French soldiers are really shamed because. And the, and the the point of doing that is, look, in the French Revolution, you said all men, all people, all men are equal. Sorry, Nadia, it probably was all men are equal. Actually, don't um, apologize and, to me. Apologize to fifty one percent of the world's population. <laughs> I will. I'll do it. I'm going to go around do and apologize apology. each person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But that was the point. Was that like um, you know. Look, we are taking your revolution seriously. You didn't take it seriously. You go on about how you know how how men are in, are enslaved, and we need to fight against tyranny and slavery. But as soon as you actually see actual physical slavery, you don't mean it. Um, and so it was that the Haitian Revolution was seen as you know, well, we're going to complete the French Revolution. We're going to do we're going to do complete it because um, you know the French Revolution fell short. And you could sort of see, you know, the feminist movement as, as in some ways, as you know, well, yeah, but well, what about everybody else? Is everybody else included in this equality, etc.? Sure, and, and in the English-speaking world, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft writes mm. the vindication of the rights of women in the 1790s. Yeah, it, it's as absolutely in that as part of that milieu, because the French Revolution, you know, is this sort of political crisis in France as the kind of aristocratic and monarch- monarchical order. You know, complete has become completely bankrupt and completely inefficient and it starts off with a set of fairly sort of liberal political demands for you know representation effective go- government responsible government budgeting and this sort of thing and it but then it accumulates and accumulates and it goes through these various stages particularly as as the the people of paris become more and more central to the revolutionary process as political actors. And then in the early 1790s, it goes through this very radical phase um, when it looks like you know, the issue of like class inequality might start to come on the, on the political agenda. And at that point, you know, much has happened in the English Revolution, actually, once the issue of class inequality starts to come on, starts to come on the agenda. 
there's a kind of reconfiguration of forces. The liberal middle classes mostly ally themselves with the more forward-thinking residual elements of the aristocracy, and they line up behind Napoleon in France. And Napoleon is committed to, among other things, suppressing the revolution in Haiti in order to protect French colonial interest. Although reputedly Napoleon regretted that when he was in his later life, in his exile. And reputedly, not, not, not necessarily for ethical reasons, but for strategic political reasons. He, I've, I've heard it claimed that Napoleon decided that it had been a strategic error not to support the Haitian revolution and then have a revolutionary allies in the Americas, in the Caribbean. Because the French Revolution is like a massive, it is perceived all across Europe and the world as like a massive sort of crisis. Because it has really put on the table the idea that the masses might organise themselves, you know, presumably under the leadership of like the middle classes, and overthrow established institutions of monarchy, of aristocracy, etc. And of course, the French army, I mean, one of the things that happens is that the, is that the, the French revolutionary government, because it's got all this kind of democratic fervour, it's able to raise an ar- a kind of mass cons- conscript army and that's really the first time anybody's done that. And where, what's the relationship? Sorry, to the uh, to the to the state in terms of where the state's army was at that moment. Well, this, there isn't really a state. Well, this, this is, is the, the thing. thing, right? Okay, there wasn't really a state. There was a set of there was a very complex set of feudal institutions like landowners with their rights and obligations. The church. There was the crown. And it was, con- and there was the way the crown had kind of contractual relationships all over the place. We basically with sort of individuals. Right, so the infrastructure was quite fucked by the time we got yeah, there. Yeah, it right, was okay. fucked. Like for the for the business for the emerging sort of business classes, you know, there was. I mean, this is the classic Marxist analysis: is that for the for the kind of emerging middle class, the merchant classes, there were all these stupid rules like which stopped them doing business. Because basically the right to tax them had been sold to like just countless like you know just some Shit local sounds like UK twenty twenty one man. <laughs> I mean there was just there was no stable way for the state to like raise money and then be accountable for how that money was spent, and that's how and that that was also the same in England in the sixteen forties. I mean that's how and it's also the same with the American Revolution. I mean all these revolutions really as political events they all get going at a point where. The, the kind of emerging middle class feels like it's got the the political confidence and the economic weight to be able to say to the king, look, we're not going to keep paying for your wars and shit unless we have a say over how the money gets spent. And then one way or another, you know, some kind of deal has to be worked out as to what is the means by which those taxpayers are then are going to be consulted on how the money gets spent and how and how broad a franchise is going to be extended like how big a group of people are you going to be consulting and how big a group of people are still just going to be locked out of the democratic process altogether and to be to do what they're told and, and that's a, and that is a, a thing that doesn't really get resolved until mass suffrage in the early 20th century but the the rhetoric of the french revolution is it's it doesn't matter what happened in the past 
we're, we're, we're ditching everything from the past. And also, it has a universalistic ideology. Like, the mass conscript of army of France kind of runs riot, basically, like winning all these battles against the other European powers um, in the name of spreading the revolution. So it's the idea that the revolution is 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 re- is not just some a local matter, but is a kind of ideological project for universal human emancipation, which is going to be the country which has had a successful revolution is going to try to spread. That really begins with the French Revolution, and that is what really terrifies the other kind of European states. And so you get a real sort of backlash, and really the the beginning of modern conservatism is the kind of is the backlash it's the reaction against the french revolution yeah what's happening at france's so france's border i haven't got in my head what france's borders looked like but yeah what's happening at the borders when this shit is kicking off in paris well france is generally i mean you know it, or france is that not an is, issue because of where pe- where where no it's massively it's, an issue yeah no it's totally an issue i mean france yeah, france has historically been the biggest territorial power in western europe biggest military power but it's been it, but it's being being encroached upon by the rise of Prussia mm. uh, and the Austro uh, and the you know the sort of Austro-Hungarian uh, the, the Habsburg. Well, I don't think they're called Austro-Hungarian. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. Can't Not remember yet. now. All those people. And since the Treaty of Westphalia, there's been a sort of in, international in 1648. There's been a set of um, rules, supposedly a set of rules in place sort of governing relationships between states and what have you. But the Russian Revolution just tears this all up. I mean, one of the debates within the French Revolution is, all right, do we just do the revolution in France? and Do we just consolidate the revolution here? Or do we go out to seek military glory? Do we show the, the, the world and our own people that revolutionary France is going to be better at fighting wars than non-revolutionary France was because non-revolutionary France over the past hundred, one of the problems is over the past hundred years, it's gone from being the dominant power to be increasingly like losing its dominance and seeing its military power threatened. And, you know, a lot of historians would say it's from a, from a leftist or radical perspective, it's kind of a dis- the disastrous decision, the decision which I think, you know, people like some of the main revolutionary leaders didn't want to happen was that they decide, yeah, we're going to go to war. So they engage in this mass project of mass conscription, what's called the Grand Levee, like the great mass conscription project. And they just sort of run riot. They go, they, the, I mean, the, the territorial borders of France massively expand because they go out and win all these battles on their borders, like taking over disputed territories and like really, I mean, just defeating everybody. Because this, is, nobody... this, is after the, this is after the local win or whatever you call it, once the Well, revolution... no, it's part of the process. Right. So if, if the, it's during the 1790s, it's during the period of the revolution and it's part of the process of the revolution. And then one of the things that kind of cons- that means that the that kind of halts the revolutionary process indeed is that the other powers of Europe kind of really led by by Britain and, and Prussia get together and say look we're not having this shit and they, and they start to um you know they start to and then you've you know, gone they, too far lads yeah and they <laughs> they start to win battles you know like the battle of Waterloo I mean they eventually against Napoleon they start to win battles 
against them and they and they sort of contain revolutionary france and then and in france the most revolutionary factions of the revolutionary movement are defeated by an alliance of kind of more moderate liberal factions and just con- and conservative royalists and what have you and you end up with the sort of napoleonic compromise where instead of having a kind of democratic process that has no end in sight you have a process of building kind of liberal institutions which will allow the middle class middle class men to vote sort of but you will but you will have a very clearly defined kind of top down government which will be led by napoleon and eventually we'll see the restoration of some kind of monarchy so the kind of ideological reaction against that is the birth sees the birth of modern conservatism in, in britain edmund burke famously writes his reflections on the revolution in france and Burke basically says, this is he's saying this in 1789 at what's usually considered the date of the, the proper revolution, the revolution proper happening. Uh, he says this is all going to end in tears, that this if you try to completely overturn a social order in one go, the only possible result can be sort of totalitarian government and terror. And then, you know, that, seem, he, that seems to be sort of borne out because at its most radical phase in the early 1790s, the government, French government famously does sort of, you know, execute hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are regarded as enemies of the revolution and try to impose a highly sort of dogmatic kind of revolutionary ideology. They try to, they try to create a whole new It's a religion. consolidation phase, isn't it? Where you just have to kill off loads of people. That seems yeah. to be the way it goes, right? But I think, like, sort of moving through. I think, sort of moving through the history, the, the the for the 19th century and for the radical tradition, the issue which the French Revolution really puts on the table is the question of whether a revolution is going to be merely political in nature. In other words, it's going to create a set of institutions which are completely different from the ones that have gone before, but it's largely going to create a set of institutions which fit the current social order, which don't actually change the balance of social and economic power. They merely reflect it. Or whether your revolution is actually going to be a social revolution, which actually tries to create actual social equality, actually tries to challenge the social and economic order, the class order of society. And of course, liberals and the, the middle classes and the people who are really the, the rising power of the time generally just want a political revolution and obviously have no interest in social revolution. The problem is there's usually not enough of them to make a revolution work without promising some kind of social change to the broader masses. So you've always got a situation, I mean, France is completely typical, but this was also happening 100 years earlier in England, and then it's replicated in various kind of national contexts over the 19th century. You've got a situation where the middle classes basically have to say to uh, the emerging working class, some elements of the peasantry, you know, even poorer members of what you might call the middle class, say to them, uh, come on, lads, like, yeah, well, let's have a revolution and when we'll create democracy and freedom and justice for all. And then as soon as you've used them to kind of defeat the monarchy, you know, its military forces, the aristocracy, then you have to start saying, no, no, actually, well, that's it now. That's as far as we're going. We're, gonna, we're just going to create a set of liberal institutions and we're definitely not going to let poor people vote.
what happens in the 19th century is in the aftermath of the, of the French Revolution, there are all these sort of left-wing groups uh, around who are sort of, you know, who have been inspired by the more radical ends of the French Revolution uh, and want, you know, this social revolution to happen, to, you know, to bring about a society without domination or, or some sort of society uh, of equals. But there isn't like necessarily, it's not clear who the agent for that is, who the revolutionary agent for that is. So that's one of the things that gets clarified in the, in the sort of 19th, the 19th century in fact, we should probably talk about the Industrial Revolution. Oh, yeah. I suppose that takes that, that, that brings back. So, so part of the thing that happens with the Industrial Revolution and the birth of the factory system, et cetera, is that, you know, you have the development of an agent for revolution. And so that's one of the things that Marxism does. It sort of says, well, look, now we've got this agent who is who's revolution, which is the, the developing working class. But I suppose that the Industrial Revolution is a revolution of a very different sort, isn't it? The Industrial Revolution. I suppose that gets brings us to this question of, you know what what has to change in wider society for this conception of ruptural revolution to make sense i want to just talk briefly about the, this um german historian sort of conceptual historian reinhard koselek he's trying to explain why why revolution isn't thinkable in the sort of middle ages and then it becomes thinkable towards the end of the of the 18th century and he's, he 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 has this distinction between the people's experiences and their expectations. So he talks about the horizon of expectation and the space of experience, basically. And he says, in the in the, in the Middle Ages, change happens so slowly that your experiences that they, they wouldn't there wouldn't be a reason why you'd think your experiences would be different to your expectations. Yeah, basically, experiences will, will will mean that the experience your expectations are that nothing will change or that you know that it will continue as your experience has shown you. And then the pace of change develops. Uh, and, and speeds up in terms of like conceptual change, but also technological change and the social change that goes along with that. To introduce this idea that there's this this gap between your space of experience and your horizons of of expectations, and that that's where you know the expectations that things could be different come in, basically. And like that is a lead through to there's this sort of theory of revolution called the J curve theory of revolution by James. C. Davis. So this J curve theory of revolution is that like it's not when 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 people are re, when when societies are really ground down and impoverished, that's not when revolutions happen because people are taken up by trying to physically survive. Mm. What tends to happen is you have revolutionary situations emerge when you've you've had a period of rising living standards and so therefore rising expectations, which which suffer a reverse, right? Which get thwarted. And so people's expectations are high, and they're but then you know they're worried that their gains will be taken away from them, and that's the that's the that's the place where you should look for revolutionary moments, not the most ground down bit, but those are sort of times when when expectations arise and then they become thwarted. I'm trying to map that onto Britain, and I can't because I'm just trying to think. Well, in terms of inequality, like you know, after the crash in 2008. Well, one way to do it is to think about Generation Left, basically, who emerge after 2008 because you know they've had a period where they think that where they've been told if they sort of you know if they play the game then they're going to have rising living standards etc and those expectations are thwarted by 2008 and so that doesn't mean there's a revolution but you know people become open to to different ways in which the which that the expectations can be 
changed or or, or or could be different to their present experiences if you know okay I mean. go back to the j-curve again so so it, okay so is it just called the j-curve because his name is j or is it actually like, it looks like a j yeah so it's like a graph it looks like a j things have been going down then they go up and then they stop right gotcha the industrial revolution I think it's, I mean it's always important to remember nobody called it that at the time, and that's a yeah. term that wouldn't have been used till mm. the late late nineteenth century at the earliest. But the idea, when the idea of revolution uh, as a, as a kind of the general way we conceptualise massive social change had really become sort of somewhat institutionalised. But even if we don't call it the industrial revolution, by the early nineteenth century, people can see that things are really really changing, especially in Britain. Um, that, that a whole new way of life is emerging. And I, I mean, that relates to the points you were just making, Kit, that really, this is the first time in a really long time that people have experienced very rapid change, like within the space of a generation. Yeah. You know, rather than being very incremental change. But there, there's definitely been other times in history when that happened, like, you know, the you know, fall of the Western Roman Empire, things like that. But there's really the first time in a really long time in somewhere like in in Western Europe that people have had that experience. And the point is, I mean, I, I think, I mean, the background of the, of the Industrial Revolution is crucial because I think, like sort of Gear was saying, that's one of the things that creates in people's minds by the by the the end of the 18th century the idea that well, everything can change, the the whole way of life can change, it can change, and therefore, you know, maybe it should change, and and also. Also, amongst conservatives and reactionaries, you know, the fear that it might, the fear that that there is a real threat um, of total change is all is is there and becomes, you know, a kind of dominant theme. And so, by the mid nineteenth century, there have been events sort of comparable to the French Revolution in various countries. I mean, sort of all over Latin America, for one thing, but also in, in various parts of Europe. On the other hand, you know, there's by the time Marx is first writing the Communist Manifesto, there's quite a strong sense that, like in Habsburg Europe, for example, that those that those things haven't quite happened. That the even that the sort of the establishment of a modern liberal democracy and a kind of government committed to industrialization and you know capital accumulation, you know, people like Marx and Engels think, well, that's only really happened in the United States, Britain and France has still hasn't really happened anywhere else. And Marx and Engels start to are also looking at that the un, the, the ways in which the French Revolution seemed to have been unfinished and the possibility that the the working class elements of the Parisian radical forces, you know, might become more and more important to French politics and and working class people might become more important to politics elsewhere. And they basically develop a whole theory of history, which is a, partly a radicalization of, of Hegel, the German philosopher Hegel's theory of history, in which they see it as moving through these necessary historical stages. And But the transition point between historical stages is always a revolution. So that's the point at which you start to look back at what, ha- like what had been always called the English Civil War. And so, well, actually, that was a revolution. It was a revolution to overthrow like the, the, the established order of aristocracy and monarchy and make the world safe for capital accumulation. And then the French Revolution was also that. And the, the Amer- even, the, even the American Revolution, to a certain extent, was also that. And so Marx and Engels developed this, this conception of history, which, which also they think has a sort of predictive capacity, which says that, 
Well, the next thing that's going to happen in history, and we've already we saw it start to happen a little bit in the most radical phase of the French Revolution, is that the working class, in his, particularly the the new urban industrial working class, which the Industrial Revolution is producing, is going to eventually is going to make its own revolution and is going to establish socialism. And that is and that is what the, and that is their sort of their understanding of what's going to happen, and. The Paris Commune, which we've talked about on the show before in the 1870s, for example, because it has a very strong working class element and and has a strong dimension of wanting to um, sort of create collective property and things like this, seems to be sort of fulfilling those predictions. And also spatially, I think the Paris Commune is specifically interesting because of how the inside of the city was taken over and the barricades were built. I mean, they had hot air balloons coming in and out, man. It is just like, you know, serious shit. So there's a revolutionary wave in 1848, which fails. And then there's a, wa- a, a, a wave of reaction after that. And so, yeah, so Marx has got, you know, a particular conception of how, of how of how revolution should go and what the role of the state would be in that. And in 1872, it seems as though people have almost done away with the state. There's a huge, it's like a huge wave of sort of self-organization and real democratic, you know, explosion of democratic control in, in some sorts of ways in in the, the, the Paris Commune, which, and, and following that, he sort of, you know, he starts to change his idea of what, a revolution might look like so it so there is this sort of like there's this predictive almost teleological as though history is moving in a certain direction sort of element to marx but there's also this element which is you know actually it's in fact it's that quote the whole communism is the real movement that uh, abolishes the present state of things it's also it's something that happens and people try out and work out what the possibilities are uh, and that's one of the you know those those sort of dynamics are more determinist sort of conception of marxism and a more contingent conception of, of of marxism and revolution are two waves that go through the subsequent history of how people think about what revolution is and you know how history works etc I mean, that's happened with the Paris Commune, but other things also happening in the 1870s, for example, in Britain, they start to be developments that are quite different from what Marx was expecting, say, in the 1840s. So when they write the Communist Manifesto, they have a pretty clear vision of what they think is going to happen, which is the working class is going to organise itself politically, the, the bourgeoisie will attempt to suppress it, but ultimately they won't be able to suppress it because it's too big. And then something that will, will basically look like the French Revolution will happen in each respective country, which is that a well-organised revolutionary force, presumably based in the capital city, will take over, take power, and will take control of the state. And it will then use the state to impose the, the programme laid out in the Communist Manifesto. But what's happening in Britain by the 1870s is, yes, the industrial working class has got itself organised politically, uh, 
no, there has been some attempt at suppression, uh, but then, you know, sort of faction, inter-class rivalries to some extent within the ruling class mean that uh, uh, the Conservative Party in the 1870s, you know, which is kind of allied to landowners and, and see as their main rivals, the kind of in, the rising industrial capitalist class. The, the Conservative government of Benjamin Disraeli like, decriminalises trade unionism and enfranchises some of the workers because... Yeah, essentially, their you know, quite brilliant strategic conception of what's going on is if if they offer a, a kind of a layer of the industrial working class, like the most, the already most affluent layer, if they say to them, "Yeah, yeah, you can have unions and you can have the vote, you can have things like building societies, you know, you can you can become homeowners and you can become respectable, you know, you can be the respectable working class. You don't need to make a revolution." then they can successfully neutralise any sort of threat of revolution. And indeed, that is what happened. There has to be a payoff, right, though? Whether whether it's the housing or, uh, or whatever, any of the examples that you just gave, like there has to be a payoff for that. Term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Concessions have to be made, but those yeah. concessions are made and they're successful. And then towards in the last decades of the 19th century, you get situations like we're in Germany, which by the end of the 19th century has the largest, best organised, most militant socialist trade union movement. You also get like the highly authoritarian government, you know, imperialist government of Bismarck, you know, making like massive concessions, like starting to build a kind of modern wealth, the beginnings of a modern welfare state. Because they have a very clear sense that say, ah, if you if you make significant concessions, then a whole chunk of the working class will abandon any any aspiration to yeah. revolution. Yeah. So then by the end of the 20th century, um, the international sort of socialist movement is really faced with some real kind of dilemmas. Well, so given that basically a, a set of reforms are being made, which if you've asked anyone in the 1840s, how would you get those reforms? They'd have said, well, violent revolution is the only way they would ever happen. And like a, a load of them are being made anyway. And they're being made partly, indeed, because of the fear of revolution and because of the force and the political power of the working class. But they're not, you know, it's not it's sort of it's not inevitable that the working class, like once they've won those reforms, is go is going to actually remain committed or ever be committed to a sort of revolutionary project. So then you get the kind of classic debate within the Do you mean end of nineteenth century, end of twentieth? Because you said end of twentieth. No, I meant end of 19th. 19th, right, okay. I meant end of 19th, uh, beginning of 20th. The late 19th, early 20th century. Really from the 1870s up to the First World War. And that's when you start to get the classic strategic debates within the international workers' movement around the dis- whether you want to make a conceptual distinction between reform and revolution. And whether an idea of revolution which is still really sort of indebted to the French, the experience of the French Revolution is even still relevant. And so <clears throat> the so-called revisionists within the, so- the international socialist movement, led by people like the German social democrat leader Bernstein, and you've got to remember that in the social democrat means Marxist socialist at, at this time. Um, that's what Marxist socialists call themselves. So the German kind of leader Bernstein, for example, you know, famously basically says, look, you know, that idea, the idea of revolution that Marx had was basically a hangover from the experience of the French Revolution. Like it's completely inappropriate to a situation where you have mass suffrage, 
where you have a, a well a legal trade union movement, you have a workers' press, etc. Clearly, that's not what the kind of the transition to socialism is going to. It's not going to look like a version of the French Revolution. It's going to look more like modern social democratic parties will just keep winning elections and keep implementing reforms until at some point you'll look around and say, "Oh, well, actually, we've we've pretty much replaced capitalism now with with socialism." And then the the critics of that perspective always say, well, no, sooner or later, there's going to come a crunch point where if if your reforms are going far enough, you know, the bourgeoisie will react. They'll probably react with violent force. And you're going to have to be prepared for that. You're going to have to, and you might as well, you know, you, you better be getting ready for that or you're never actually going to you know, get past a certain limit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good way to put it, that, that about whether... Yeah, whether there's a crunch point. I mean, the crunch point is given by capitalist profitability, isn't it, basically? <laughs> to, to what extent can you have rising living standards for the working class and maintain profitability, enough profitability for capital to keep investing and growing, etc.? I think that's still one of the, the one of the ways in which you frame, you have to frame the debate between reform and revolution because that calculation is different, depending at different times in history and depending on the sort of economic settlement of that time. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think I want to clarify that because I think it's a key point. I think that's completely right. I would say from a contemporary vantage point, it looks like the situation is this. During periods of expanding capitalist profitability, if you have a well-organized working class, it looks like you can win major reforms without any serious social conflict. And then during those periods, Lots of people come to the conclusion, well, why would you bother? Why would you want to do something as violent, as messy as a revolution when, look, we can just win all these reforms? And then what happens, Several, at least at two major junctures in that history, the 30s and the 70s, is you hit a crisis of profitability and it turns out capital has no intention of conceding any more reforms and is going to withdraw and it's going to like it's going to dismantle as many of the reforms you made as it yeah, can possibly yeah, get yeah, away yeah. with i think the dismantling is a key is a key it's key there cuz it's like i mean for me that's i mean i we grew up like somebody me and Keir's age like we came of age at, at a point in like the 80s where you know, the previous 40 years had largely seemed to bear out the idea that, well, you, well why would you we need revolution? You know, you can win reforms and, and massive social progress. And then since then, we've lived through a period where it's become increasingly clear that liberal democracy plus trade unionism just can't actually defend those reforms during periods of crisis. It works really even better on the in the 1930s and the 1970s but like the pre-First World War debates that went on, that 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 sort of got resolved in a different way by the by the emergence of the First World War, and that sort of breaks up the the Second International, which is where these a lot of these debates are taking place between reform and revolution. That that breaks it up because because basically workers fall in line behind their country, and in fact, social democratic parties, most notably the German Social Democratic Party, falls in line with with the the ruling class of 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 each side of that war and, and you know basically join in on that war and that's the thing that sort of breaks up the great social the the sort of german social democratic party and movement basically where and that was like a sort of movement which encompassed all of life it wasn't just that you know we could get these reforms 
you also people would live almost their entire lives well, that's not true many parts of their lives within <laughs> you know the 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 organizations of the the, the social democratic party can, can you just do one line on what the second international is for people who have no idea so Karl Marx, Marx and his allies around Europe have a thing called the International Working Men's Association, which is like a few hundred people, a few hundred radicals in different countries, though, who sort of correspond with each other and have meetings. And that's what we call the first international, the International Working Men's Association. A few hundred nutters and fringe figures hey. like Marx and Bakunin. And then by the end of the, but but then it's um, it's replaced kind of formally by the second international. I don't, I can't, I don't know what we we always just refer to as the second international, but it's the international organisation of socialist and labour parties, which by the end of the nineteenth century includes the German Social Democrats in 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 the early twentieth century. It includes the British Labour Party. You know, it's a it's a huge force. All, all the socialist parties belong to it. So the Russian Social Democrats, including and the Bolsheviks, um, the Labour Party in Britain, the Social Democratic parties in Scandinavia, in Germany, in um, all, all other parts of Europe, the Socialist Party in France, they all belong to this organisation called the Second International. And that's like the most unified that movement has ever been. And then indeed, as Keir said, during World War One, I. I mean, it, there's a real dilemma for all the, the various national parties. I think the sort of leftist caricature, which I mean, I also like promote. I mean, I will also say this when I'm talking about it very quickly as well. They all chose nationalism over international socialism. I mean, the truth is there was a real debate. Like, if you were a German social democrat, you were faced with a dilemma. Like, if Germany loses the war against Britain, is that going to be good for socialism? Uh, and they thought, and mostly they thought, no, it's going to be a disaster for socialism. We're going to be subject to sort of British imperialism. They'll probably hand us over to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is more reactionary, less developed. I mean, that's how they thought about it, whether they were right or not. But it was a real sort of dilemma. It was a real strategic dilemma. And so all of the constituent parties of the Socialist International ended up, or almost all of them, not all of them, almost all of them ended up voting to support the war effort within their national context. And that's basically the end of the Second International. And then the, the First World War happens. First World War is a total shit show. Well, just, just before we go on to that, Jim, it, it's actually an interesting point that basically what, how do we understand the First World War? You know, classically, it's understood as inter-imperialist inter rivalries, basically. And so, you know, that sort of sets us up for some later revolutions, right? Is that the picture we sort of set up, which is, you know, about the working class getting improving their living standards and then that coming into conflict with capitalist profitability. The thing that complicates that is imperialism. And so in some ways, the, the First World, if, if the 1970s are sort of, you know, they are sort of influenced by anti-colonial or decolonial revolutions, you can understand that in ways that are internal to sort of a country such as the UK. You know, imperialism is this other bit that, we, that sometimes gets forgotten about and which we can understand the First World War in. And then there's the, the other thing to say on that is the opposite position to voting for war credits or, or the or social democratic parties, you know, falling in line behind their national governments. The other position would be revolutionary defeatism. And that's the position that the, the Bolsheviks take. And, you know, and that plays a really big role, actually, in stimulating the, the Russian revolution, uh, because one of the, one of the, you know, the slogan is peace, peace and land. And like, you know, what the, what the Bolsheviks are, are proposing is, is to basically, withdraw from the first world war 
And it is that huge mobilization of soldiers who who sort of come away from the front, you know, who form a huge, huge cadre or cohort for the Russian Revolution. But let's do the Russian Revolution in a little bit more ordered style. First of all, war was a crisis for all of the kind of states of Europe, but more for the losers. Germany, Austro-Hungarian Empire as it was, and, and in particular for Russia. For Tsarist Russia, it's a total disaster. I mean, the, the Tsar, basically, the Tsarist system co- collapses, like consent, public consent for the centuries-old Tsarist system of government just collapses. And... It's, there's no clarity about what's going to replace it. It collapses in 1917. There's no clarity about what's going to replace Tsarism. It's clear that something has to, that some kind of a revolution is underway. And over the course of 1917, there's a kind of series of attempts to sort of resolve the question. And, you know, in in Russia, the most powerful political factions, the ones with the most support, especially the most support amongst the military, um, the rank and file, military rank and file, are various factions of the left, the the really radical left, really, compared to most other places in the world. But even amongst them, there's a constant debate as to whether whether they should keep fighting the war. And the only group, the only faction, the only organisation which consistently maintains a position that Russia, that that the revolutionary government should not continue to fight the war, should withdraw Russia from the war, is the Bolsheviks, who were, you know, had emerged as a faction of the Russian Social Democratic Party, a few years earlier. And they're led by Lenin and Trotsky. And it's really only during this period that sort of in response to kind of rapidly changing events, that, for example, that Lenin formulates his theory of revolution, that Lenin and Trotsky formulate their theories of revolution that will become really the most influential theories of revolution in the 20th century. So, and really what they're having to adapt to is the circumstance where classical Marxist theory and the variants of it that have been developed by most of the key thinkers in the Second International all maintained that you could only have a socialist revolution in a country that had a well-developed capitalist class and a, and a well-developed, a, a very large industrial working class. And neither of those things existed in Russia. Instead, what you had was you did have a very militant and well-organized industrial working class in Moscow and St. Petersburg. You had very high levels of support for radical socialism amongst the military. And then you had a peasantry who could kind of go either way. We're just, we're just looking for someone who would offer them indeed. Peace, you know, peace, land, and freedom. So Lenin basically Lenin formulates this idea that you can you don't have to have an, an actual proper mass proletariat. You can just have a class coalition, a cross class coalition which is led by the proletariat. So the the coalition of the workers and the peasants is what is represented by the simmer of the hammer and the sickle. But it's clearly really supposed to be led by the workers, and the workers it is assumed must be led by the revolutionary party. 
Because even before this point, Lenin has developed a critique of the way in which socialism has developed in places like Britain. And that critique says that, well, Marx is sort of wrong to think that the proletariat, in other words, the industrial working class, will spontaneously generate revolutionary consciousness for themselves because left to their own devices, they'll, they'll only ever get to the level of what he calls trade union consciousness. In other words, they'll want reforms, they'll want high wages and low working hours, but they won't challenge the basis of capitalist social relations. And so the only way they'll be persuaded to do that is if they are offered leadership by a well-organised, highly disciplined, professional revolutionary party, the, the so-called Vanguard Party. And then, well, for various reasons, I mean, we don't have time to get in. I mean, the, one of the big debates, you know, amongst historians is whether the Bolsheviks really, like, won the Russian Revolution sort of fairly by building mass support, or whether it was just the fact that they had support amongst key sections of the military enabled them to basically do a coup against the revolutionary government you know that was in place in 1917 you know we're never going to resolve that here but for you know whatever we think about that by the 1920s what you've got in Russia and in the whole all of the territory of the former Russian empire is you've got a revolutionary government which isn't even using the, the liberal institutions of parliament. It's using the new institutions of workers' democracy, the workers' councils, or the so, so-called Soviets. I mean, that's the Russian term for council. And is committed to not just building kind of capitalism with some social reforms, but directly building a socialist economy. And indeed, is committed to spreading workers' revolution all around the world. And that's the situation by the 1920s. And it's a huge rupture within the, the the international left movement. And that's when you get the split between the legacies of the Second International and the people who are members of what comes to be known as the Third International or the Comintern, the, Com- the Communist International. And that is the network of organisations and parties who are directly loyal to the Russian Communist Party and the Russian Revolution and see themselves as directly allied to it. And that's... In- interestingly, that that is when people start to call themselves communists. So Marx and Engels had used the term, had called their man- their document in 1848 the Communist Manifesto, and that because communist was like a, a kind of scare term used by conservatives who were kind of you know, imagining these people who would want to communize everything. But they used it in 1848. They u- when they wrote the Communist Manifesto, it was a deliberate provocation, like it was almost a joke. You know, they didn't call they, they didn't call their organization like a communist organization. They called themselves the International Workingmen's Association. The Russians, you know, Marxists and the German Marxists didn't call themselves communists. They called themselves social democrats. So the term the communist and it's only after the revolution that the Russian Bolsheviks call themselves like the Communist Party. And then within within the left parties, kind of all around the world, actually, within almost every country in the world, there's a split within its left party. There's a split in I mean, this, that happens in Britain, happens everywhere, really. And the faction which is, sees itself as loyal both to the project of the Russian Revolution, but also to Lenin's theories about how to organise a revolution like based on the Russian experience, um, you know, they, they call themselves communist parties and they become the communist international. And then from that point on, the idea of revolution is kind of, to some extent, I think is sort of inseparable from the idea from the model of the Russian Revolution. And one of the things that um, most people who call themselves revolutionaries from that point on, 
see themselves as in some sense trying to replicate what the Bolsheviks achieved in 1917 in Russia. And people who don't see themselves in those terms are, who are on the left anyway, are generally making some argument that, well, look, there were very, very specific conditions in in Russia. You know, there was no mass suffrage. There was a decrepit kind of mo- absolutist monarchy. Like they didn't even have functioning feudalism, like never mind functioning capitalism. And under those conditions, yeah, you can... Yeah, you can do what they did, but under all other, but under conditions such as obtained in places like the United States or Britain or indeed Germany, etc., those methods aren't necessarily going to work. And I think what happens actually is the debate about revolution versus reform it gets mixed up with a different debate, which is related but is not conceptually exactly the same. And it's the debate over basically just whether you can replicate the Russian experience or you can't. That sort of model of of revolution. There's an image that goes with it, and it's called the the storming of the Winter Palace, and people quite often use that phrase to stand in for that whole model of of revolution. That was like the key moment in the in the October revolution. There was a revolution in February, and then the the Bolsheviks initiated a, a revolution in October. You know, and that that is quite literally, you know, the 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 Winter Palace where the government is held. You know, that gets stormed by revolutionary soldiers, etc. And so the state is is sort of seized. But the other point, the other thing to, to raise about that moment is, you know, it's just after the first the First World War, bringing the First World War to an end. And it sparks a revolutionary wave across Europe, and which fails, basically. So there's most famously the, the, the German Revolution fails. The, the, it, the leaders such as uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebenich, they get sort of pushed into into a revolution, an attempted revolution that they didn't really think was the right time, and then they get they get um, captured and murdered uh, by uh, the Freikorps, which is like a pre pre Nazi sort of reactionary worker, uh, reactionary soldiers organization, uh, who were actually mobilized by the Social Democratic Party by Ebert, uh, the 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 Social Democratic Party's minister in the government. That sort of like put as an element of spice to this this growing divide that uh, Jeb was just talking about. But it's not just a, the the German Revolution. It's also you know there's a, they, they have the the two red years they call them in in um, in Italy where you have this huge upsurge of factory occupations. You know, and out of that, that's the spark that the Italian Communist Party emerges out of. And so, like the the position in in Russia is you know they thought they were leading a world revolution. That world revolution fails outside Russia. Therefore, you then have to adjust to that situation, basically, uh, which eventually leads to socialism in one country and Joseph Stalin, etc. But we could probably could use that just to talk really, really briefly about about Rosa Luxemburg's conception of of revolution. She has much more of a like she's associated with this idea that revolution would take the form of a mass strike, and so uh, uh, you know, as in a, in opposed to a, to a, to the idea of a revolution which would be done by a vanguard party, she's more linked to like a, a more sort of spontaneous idea of how a revolution happens and is that just Keir just to clarify on that so so linking that to what you were saying around the winter palace mm-hmm. is it that it's a it's also a different model because the model of a strike is where you're effectively bringing power to its knees through the withdrawal of labor on mass which is quite different to like physically 
as an yeah. army would yeah, storming yeah, right. storming yeah. uh, uh you know and th- they're both they're both extremely Im- important and powerful as models but obviously one of them is is you know you you, you can see the cinematic effects of uh much easier than you know a mass a mass strike yeah, but well, it, i mean know. it's literally cinematic because it's eisenstein's yeah. film about the storming of the Winter Palace, which establishes that as the foundational sort of myth of the Russian Revolution. No, famously, more people died during the filming of Eisenstein's uh, setting than it did in the actual revolution. But also, of course, that and, that and that was because the idea of the storming of the Bastille as being the definitive event of the Russian Revol- of the French Revolution, the the storming of the the prison the central prison in Paris in 1789. It was only really decided in like the late 19th century. Oh, well, that we're going to say that was when the French Revolution happened. So Bastille Day like, is only established as a French national holiday in the late 19th century. And the idea of storming the Winter Palace is basically directly modelled off that as well. So this idea, you've got to storm something. So yeah, you're totally right. That's ex- I think that's exactly right, Nadia. Right. But it's not just bringing things to a stop, though, Nadia, because the other, the other, the other idea of that was yeah, you know, the, the model was workers' councils or factory councils, and it would be the workers would occupy their factories, and then they'd restart them. They'd restart them without their bosses, basically, was the idea of, of the mass strike. So you know that's a different model of sort of revolution or how revolution would happen to, to the, you know seizing of the seizing of the of 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 the the high point of the state storming whatever the winter palace is in your country, and then using the state to implement a series of policies etc. The distinction between those wasn't particularly clear. You know perhaps you'd have both going on at the same time, but you, that, but it does give two two sort of ideas of revolution but Jem is completely right you know the sort of more councilist conception of revolution where workers councils just take over and, and sort of run things that becomes this massively minoritarian element of the of the left in the 20th century and the russian revolution which is successful becomes the dominant mode of of yeah, revolution it, it necessitates a different organizing model each one of those it does, yeah. But I mean, this might be a way into like the next revolution we might want to talk about, which is the Spanish Civil War and the revolution that takes place there, because that's a very different form of model of revolution, one which which might actually has some sort of it becomes quite useful later in, in discussions later in the sort of nineteen seventies, etc. Which is in the Spanish in the Spanish Civil War, you have a left government gets elected into power, and then there's a right wing attempted right wing military coup against that, and the workers rise up um, to stop the to stop the military coup, or the and in fact that comes into a military invasion because a lot of the Spanish army is in Morocco and ha- and you know that's the bit that that has to invade Spain. And what happens is that a social revolution emerges out of the defence of democracy, particularly around Catalonia, etc. And and that's because you know in Spain, Spain was one of the only countries in which it's really really strong anarcho syndicalist tradition was um, probably dominant, actually, in the workers' movement there. And, and so they seize control of the factories in Barcelona, take them over, start running them without bosses. You know, we've talked about the Spanish Civil War before. But it's a different model. It's a model in which revolution is spur- is not planned in advance, but it's spurred by the need to defend even a, a left democratic project, etc. But everyone wants to see on the table external to to Spain. So you've suddenly got all of these forces playing in, intervening, you know, and funding different bits of it. And then everybody hates each other and dies. 
Only one side. <laughs> yeah, only, only, only the fascists funded their side that was why they won yeah that's what i meant when i when i asked so i'm not talking i'm not talking about the fascists i'm saying the spanish civil war had an important significance in terms of from the world watching it of like yeah. what the hell is yeah. going to happen here and so necessarily there are different external forces going right how can we get our side to win and that is a kind of excuse the, the the visual expression, like a Russian doll system, because you've got the fascists on one side and then you've got the broadly the leftists on the other side. But within that leftist cadre, there's there's different different factions, some of which end up totally hating each other. Yeah, okay. So the Spanish Civil War, I mean, Keir's right. It's the Spanish Civil War. It's also going on in France. It's also, to some extent, it's also happening even in America, arguably, in a, in a, in a mild form with the New Deal administration. Is you've got the election of governments that are committed to uh, forms of social reform, which they themselves recognise require some form of confrontation with capitalist forces some kind of direct confrontation. Um, I mean, in the case of the New Deal, they've got no intention of making revolution. I mean, they see they see themselves as confronting some of the more reactionary elements of capital. So it's clearly not revolutionary in nature. In the case of the French Popular Front government and in the case of the Spanish uh, Popular Front government, they are they pro- at least significant elements of those governments. They do indeed, they do indeed expect a, a violent showdown with capital to be provoked by their reform program, and uh, in France that gets <laughs> that gets um, the the Nazis beat beat the beat French bourgeois to it to some extent in terms of being able to. I mean the French. I mean the, the Popular Front government kind of falls apart anyway, like before the war. But a lot of a lot of the public also thought that the you know when the public when the, when the Popular Front won the election in France in nineteen thirty. Thirty-six is it? Nineteen thirty-six. When the popular when the popular front won the election in France, Thanks, that sparked a huge wave of factory occupations because people are, like loads of workers just thought, "Oh, great, yeah. it's on! Let's have a revolution!" Then. The movement for national liberation in India, which becomes one of the models for national liberation movements, anti-colonial movements around the world, takes a, a, a is it is an explicitly non-violent model of revolution, and to some extent, although Gandhi is kind of inspired directly by people like you know Tolstoy. Um, I think you can see a kind of interesting affinity between that and like the theory of the mass strike. I mean, Gandhi is partly influenced by theories of mass strike, actually. Theories of mass strike and general strike and like pre-Luxembourg theories of of uh, general strike. Like, is it Sorel, the, the, the Italian? It's a kind of non-participation yeah. model. Yeah, yeah. It's the idea. It's, yeah. the op- I mean, Gandhi- it's kind of opting out in a way. Well, I mean, the idea, I mean, the point in India was that there was a very little industrial working class, like most people are sort of peasants. And the idea was if that peasants could be, would be, could just indeed, could just stop participating 
with colonial capitalism and just that's why the spinning wheel became the spinning wheel mm. became the symbol of national liberation because the idea was people should spin their own cloth in the villages where they were also growing the cotton that were done, you know. yeah but we but then yeah what we want to talk about is not just the the question of gandhiism particularly and that model um, but also national liberation to yeah. kind of colonial and imperial powers everywhere, you know, like the whole of, especially especially Africa. I mean, Latin America did it a whole, you know, the, the timing is, of stuff is different, but, you know, the whole of Africa and a, a lot of Asia, people are going, yeah, fuck this. Is that revolutionary? Yeah, well, it is. Well, the, well, the most important, I mean, the, the of, of the great world revolutions that hardly ever gets mentioned in, in Western-centric or kind of Russian-centric, actually, histories of revolution is the Chinese revolution. There's a national revolution against you know, the ancient imperial system, which has de- become decayed and decrepit. Then there's a war of it. There's a war of national liberation against Japanese colonialism, really in the decades between the two world wars. And then there's a civil war. I mean, much as happens in Russia, much as it happens in lots of other comparable contexts, there's a civil war between the two main factions who fought the war of national liberation and that is the liberal sort of pro-capitalist uh faction the so-called nationalists and the communists and the communists win and by 1949 you have a government in as well you have a, by the you know, the period after world war ii you have a government in china like one in russia and the, the former russian empire which is committed nominally at least committed to a kind of project of global world revolution and so then in the really in the post-war period the decolonizing movement the anti-colonial movement around the world it takes its inspiration sort of variously from india uh, and from china and, and russia and it is really it is really significant that like a, a, a huge part of the anti-colonial movement in many countries in many parts of africa and parts of asia sees itself as participating in this international communist movement. And and I think it's a key reason why the really authoritarian and kind of xenophobic forms of nationalism are, are so weak within those movements during that period. Mm. We should also mention uh, places where, where where revolutions in that period are forestalled involve an imaginable death. You know, millions of people in Indonesia, of leftists in Indonesia, get, get just get killed in order to prevent... You know, because the, the movement is strong there, etc. You know that. that um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just oh, revolutions happen and then violence happens. You know, the, the revolution doesn't have to happen in order for absolute, you know, huge genocides to to, to take place to pre- to prevent that. And then you have, I suppose, you then you move into things such as the Cuban Revolution, in which you know, a, a very small group actually sparked that revolution. A small group of guerrillas go up into the, they come in from uh, Mexico, they go up into the Sierra Madre Mountains and they wage a guerrilla war, which then turns into a big revolution. And the Cuban revolution is a real model, is seen as a real model for how revolution might might, might take place, particularly in Latin America after that. What year are we? It's not complete till sort of 59. Yeah. yeah. But so I, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So 
the gorilla model yeah and so cuba does become another model and that ends up having a big influence on the kind of radical imaginary of people around the world the idea that you have a small you basically have gorillas engaging in what would later be have been be, end up being described almost as sort of terrorist action but the idea is if the masses are ready they will rise up kind of inspired by this this gorilla actions and and make a proper mass revolution but you've got to say, like in Cuba, that model totally worked. I mean, Cuba ends up being one of the few countries in the world where you can really say, you know, pretty clearly there's like mass support for the project of radical socialism, you know, real mass support, not just sort of grudging sense that we might as well try this because there's nothing better going on Like you get seem to have in places like Russia for a while. But, you know, real mass sort of enthusiastic mass support. And I think that's right about the model of the gorilla, kind of the the face of like the gorilla fighter or the you know gorilla movements being kind of in a way. I mean, I'm sure there are others, but I like that kind of those those three that we've got: storming the Winter Palace, like the mass strike, and you know the gorilla movement as kind of like images that cut that are conjured by different ways of doing mm. revolution. Yeah. I think that's I think that, interesting. Yeah, I think that's really useful. And I think we we should add, like Keir said, the fourth, which is just a left government wins an election and then becomes, or maybe that's part of a mass strike strategy or something. But then, of course, at the same time, as that, that, that Cuban model of revolution starts to really become part of the imaginary landscape of, of revolutionaries around the world, is you get a real sort of crisis for the idea that storming the Winter Palace is going to lead to a desirable revolution because the level of disillusion with the authoritarianism and militarism of the Soviet Union uh, really reaches a new level after the 1956 invasion of Hungary. And after the invasion of Hungary in 1956, like an in, a, a huge cohort of Marxist intellectuals and activists around the world you know, breaks with the Comintern. Lots of pe- people leave the Communist Party. Entire organisations disaffiliate from the Comintern, from the Third International. And that's really the moment of the, the birth of what Britain and America is called the New Left, and we should just say actually that um you know that the, the soviet invasion of hungary is sparked by something well which is sometimes called the hungarian revolution which looked a little bit more like that whole mass strike version of revolution in which workers occupied their their factories etc um, yeah yeah it is i mean that, it's- that, that had a renewal that gave a sort of renewal to this this sort of like counts this idea of of revolution yeah, that's which, right. Which I mean, there's some sort of influence in the in the events of the nineteen nineteen sixties. I mean, I mean, it's just, I mean the the, the invasion. Hungary is invaded to prevent a set of democratic reforms being implemented that the leadership of the Russia of the of the Hungarian Communist Party want to implement. I mean, they see themselves as a, as in all good faith having implemented the authoritarian model of Stalinist communism of necessity uh, during a period of consolidation and they think the time is right for democratization of you know of of indeed democratization of processes of production but also democratization of institutions and Stalin's you know the Stalinist regime isn't having it because they think it's the thin end of a wedge which will lead to Hungary becoming bourgeois democratic you know becoming liberal no no longer being a kind of loyal satellite of the Soviet Union and and um and so they and so the the red army invades they invade and they install 
I mean, if what they do actually is they install a, a loyal Stalinist faction, you know, in in power within the, the Hungarian Communist Party, and then of course they do pretty much exact pretty much exactly the same thing happens in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and both those two moments, 56 and 68, are moments of like mass disillusion with with formal communism with the politics of the Comintern, and indeed, and as Keir said, they they're seen as within the international left. They're seen as suppressions of the councilist democratic, you know, wing of socialism by a kind of militarist, you know, state, you know, statist, totalitarian version of it, and, and a sort of counter-revolution, almost counter-revolutionary version of it. So the upshot of all this is that by the end of the sixties, there's very widespread disillusion with the legacy of the. October 1917 revolution in Russia. There's considerable controversy and disquiet over the direction of the Chinese revolution and its legacy. And there's disillusion with the Western European communist parties in in the places where they they were the most powerful parties on the left, like France and Italy. And there's a growing sort of revival of interest in anarchist ideas, councilist ideas, radical democratic ideas. And there's a broad sort of turning away from forms of uh, political organisation that rely on highly centralised or top-down modes of organisation. I mean, that's not exclusively what's going on. I mean, from the student movement in the late 60s through into the early 2000s there's still a fairly vigorous sort of you know trotskyist uh, revolutionary movement i mean there still is to this day you know and so trotskyists generally take the view that you know basically the russian model leninist model of revolution was correct but that the great mistake made uh, in the soviet union was to retreat from the aspiration towards a world revolution that had characterized um, the early phases of the Russian Revolution. And that's why the idea of like being part of an international organization uh, has remained really important to uh, self identified Trotskyists to this day, even though, uh, you know, the sort of scale and size of the Trotskyist internationals since the 90s has really been sort of comparable with the first you know international working men's association i mean you know there are various organizations claiming to be a fourth or fifth international in the trotskyist tradition and most of them have like a few hundred uh, active members and have had zero impact politically but there's a significant revival of that kind of uh, activity as well um coming out of the student movement in the late 60s and partly Partly from the 60s onwards, there's a fairly common pattern, and it's certainly one I've seen sort of replicated in, in the experiences of some of my friends and comrades, whereby you sort of start off life as a teenage anarchist, like committed to sort of completely libertarian, decentralised, democratic, participatory, non, uh, sort of non-authoritarian um, modes of organisation, and then you become disillusioned with that because it turns out that actually you just can't get anything done that way. And then you become convinced of the, uh, the strong value of, uh, of, of actual disciplined organisation. You join like a Trotskyist organisation and something and spend a few years doing that, sort of acting like you're a member of the, um, you know, the Bolsheviks in 1915 and having a secret party name and all sorts of things. 
And then eventually you realise that, well, that isn't getting anywhere because you were not in Russia in 1915 and you usually end up uh, being a sort of left-wing member of the Labour Party, doing a bit of community organising and a bit of, uh, you know, work with something like Momentum and what have you. I'm not talking about myself here, to be clear. I mean, actually, I just, um, you know, my, my views on all this stuff have barely shifted since the late 80s when I... You know, decided that I was, in theory, I was a sort of anarcho-syndicalist, but in practice, given that we're not in a pre-revolutionary historical moment, you know, you just need to use whatever means are available to you to get results. But anyway, in terms of our overall history, that's pretty much where things end up, I would say, by sort of about 1970, you have very broad disillusion with... Uh, the Leninist model, which had seemed to be so successful over much of the 20th century. And you have some people trying to sort of maintain a quite orthodox form of sort of Leninist Trotskyism um, and thinking that the only problem with that, the implementation of that was, you know, because of Stalin and the ways he deviated from a certain kind of Trotskyist Leninist view of the world. Uh, and probably a larger numbers of people uh, being attracted towards, you know, more sort of dem- radical democratic, sort of decentralised, sort of neo-anarchist ideas, but really not having any success at all in, in terms of implementing those as actual revolutionary projects. And that's about where you get up, where you get to um, in around, around sort of 1970, um, which is where we we pick up the story in the main episode on revolution. So we can leave it there now. 